0: It takes an endless amount of history to make even a little tradition. That's a quote by American author Henry James, and as I began to put this second episode together, it stood out to me. I grew up in Ireland performing with and teaching bands that in many cases were close to 150 years old. Most of these bands had a very real sense of their past and where they had come from. But it was nearly always the bands who marched that had a clearer identity and connection with their own history. What is it about the marching arts in particular that makes tradition and history such a core part of what we do? Is it the uniforms that we wear with pride knowing that previous generations have also worn those same colours? Is it an anthem that speaks to the heart of your core? Or is it a code and shared set of values that ties you and your peers to those who have come before? So I don't know whether I ever told you this manually, but if I hadn't have joined the army and become a musician, I was definitely going to go and study history in college. Like it was by far my favorite subject in school, had an absolute passion for it, still do. So this episode on the history of drum corps and uh, the history of of the activity and the various different corps, uh, this one I've been really looking forward to getting to know because uh, quite honestly, I really don't know much prior to 2014 I'm more excited
1: about it than you let on i had no idea
0: yeah definitely uh, so like what about yourself with, with when taking part in the activity did did you ever feel as a as a as a uh, performer that you got a good sense of what the history of your core was or whether the history the history of the activity generally or was it just not something that was necessarily that important to your particular years of mar- marching
1: i don't and I always feel bad saying this. I don't think that the history of drum corps itself and Drum Corps International was ever really impressed upon me. Again, I don't know that it was like vital to getting through tour, you know. So mm-hmm. I, I, there wasn't a lot of conversation, and maybe that was just me and the circle that I ran with. Um, but I do feel that I had a better sense of the histories that the corps I was the corps of the corps I was marching in. That being said, it still really wasn't great. It's probably, I'm a little embarrassed to say how about how little I know about drum corps and the course that I marched in, in terms of the history. I feel like my knowledge base is very small.
0: Well, I suppose, I mean, the, the shows that you're putting putting together a lot of the time as well, they're so intense. And, and the amount of time that's put into actually preparing those shows, is, is it's so much. There probably just isn't that much time to really get a sense of, you know, this is the history of your core. And I mean, I'm... I'm sure, though, it was probably communicated to you that you were stepping in the shoes of people yes. that have come before you, like in a general sense, was it?
1: There were there were traditions, like you have your core songs that you would play or sometimes even sing together and, you know, little traditions through throughout the season. Um, and those vary from core to core, even between the two cores that I marched with. I noticed there were some big differences, but the, those are the things that I noticed more about the hit that I learned more about the history of the cores that I marched with than actual like this core was founded in so and so and so a year by so and so and so and so we didn't talk about that kind of stuff we talked about the core song and the core values of of being a member
0: covering a century of history of cores and shows would require an entire podcast documentary in itself and there's already plenty of great content available online that will cover many of these topics in far more detail What I'd like to try to do on this episode is get a sense of how we arrived to this point. How did this activity become Marching Music's Major League? In
2: 2021, we are going to be celebrating the 100th anniversary of competitive drum corps.
0: Dan Atchison, CEO of Drum Corps International.
2: It was born out of a uh, a parade competition at an American Legion event in Kansas City, based on research done by uh, some really good people uh, that have tried to determine where did this thing come from? And from there, it evolved uh, into a uh, kind of a competitive activity that was an extension of the VFW and the American Legion uh, here in the United States. And then it evolved even further into the Catholic Church Uh, used to have uh, small groups that participated, and then uh, police youth organizations. Uh, So a combination of all those organizations had these community groups. So you'd be talking about maybe 40, 50 uh, kids that would come together and they compete and and so forth. But before those kids did, it was an adult activity. It was a very club-like activity as an extension of these uh, uh, veterans that came home, Uh, gathered in these clubs and then decided to make some music and uh, march in a parade uh, with drums and bugles. And then that evolved onto a football field uh, or uh, probably uh, mostly football fields. uh, But uh, all the way up into the DCI era, there was only one line and that was the 50 yard line uh, on those fields. Because we did, uh, back in those days, we did a lot of squad drills, you know, three-person or six-person squads uh, and very military maneuvers, and that's why we called it marching and maneuvering and, you know, those types of things. But uh, it it evolved in in such a way that uh, the instruments themselves were kind of crude. They weren't B-flat trumpets. Uh, you know, they were, uh, bugles, some with one valve, valve rotor, uh, that evolved in the early seventies into two valves, but, uh, uh, the drums were, you know, your basic, uh, uh, you know, snare drum, bass drum and a tenor drum. And then they started to evolve, uh, into these bigger drums that people would carry and all the way to the point where they started to carry a single person would carry a single timpani.
0: So far, the origins of drum corps sounds pretty similar to the origins of many brass, wind and marching bands across the world. In the late 1800s and early 1900s, an explosion of new bands with new instrumentation and the ability to not only play concerts, but perform outside and lead parades, started to evolve with the support of churches, veteran organisations, temperance societies and even factories and mining companies. Having a band to represent your organisation was a real boon to your cause. When did Drum Corps start to evolve from this system of sponsorship? Time to meet another DCI Hall of Famer, and someone I think will be able to shed some light on the development of Drum Corps over this century.
3: I remember when, and furthermore in another thing that I'd also like to
0: say... This is Michael Cesario, former Artistic Director for DCI, and someone you're going to be hearing a lot from over this episode.
3: You know, I aged out before DCI was a thing. A drum corps here in uh, the States had been going uh, full throttle uh, right after uh, World War One, And many uh, corps propped up the neighborhood corps. And these were not necessarily large groups. They were not necessarily uh, uh, college musicians. They were kids off the streets, really, and uh, it was a way of uh, the various church groups. Uh, St. Brendan's would be uh, a huge uh, competitor to St. Michael's, and so on and so forth, and uh, they were neighborhood, and perhaps there'd be some sort of situation where CYO, here that's Catholic Youth Organization, Mm -hmm. uh, often had uh, big contests, especially in the east, in the Boston area, and up in there. But uh, Drum Corps spread uh, because uh, the American Legion and the Veterans of Foreign Wars organizations uh, enjoyed them, liked their big parades, and wanted. Uh, seemed like every local post wanted somebody to represent them in the big mm-hmm. parades. And then they had uh, contests on Saturday night, which were their big... Uh, uh, drum corps shows, and they would pack the stands because it was what the entertainment for the evening was for the VFW or American Legion convention. So that was really my era. Uh, they started consolidating, but every corps, even though it was known by its own name, uh, it might be the Cavaliers or uh, Kilties and whatever, but they also had a post name so um and they were announced at those shows by their post name but as the course grew as the course got better there did become fewer of them and uh, Mm. that was because the cost of drums or uniforms or what have you uh, became more and more expensive Uh, the famous story of course is the one of the uh, of the uh, cadets who were the Holy Name Cadets, uh, Holy Name Church from huh. Garfield, New Jersey, and in 1957, and they had won many a uh, American Legion title, national title, because wherever the conventions for these service veterans organizations were, that's where the convention would be. That's also where the big nationals contest would be, oftentimes right. running into September into school time, which was not always easy to do, but at any rate, um, so the cadets had won many, and their arch rivals, the Cavaliers from the Chicago area, Chicago Cavaliers at that time, I think they were, uh, uh, I can't tell you what suburb of Chicago they were from. They were often known Mm -hmm. as the Chicago Cavaliers. Park Ridge, I think, is where they were from at the time. And it's 1957, and one day, The church just says to the core, I'm sorry, but we're no longer sponsoring you. The money needs to go toward painting the church or whatever it was. And It didn't seem like a a bad cause. It was Mm -hmm. just that where they were going to get the money was from the core budget. So they they disbanded the core. Well, needless to say, the leaders of the core and the kids in the core were very upset. And they were determined to go on. And they founded, that very day, the Garfield Cadets. And, and um, they had no uniforms because the uh, church kept the uniforms. And uh, horns and drums. And what was very intriguing was that they went on, they wore shorts and, uh, and knee socks and uh, polo shirts uh, instead of their fabulous cadets array. And Mm. what was really intriguing was the Cavaliers did an outreach and lent the cadets horns and drums and flagpoles and so on uh, in order that they might compete uh, uh, against them. So really, that was kind of where you started understanding that drum corps was a brotherhood, um, Mm. a fraternity, a sisterhood, as the Rory, whatever you want to call it, of like-minded folks for which this youth activity was the center of it not the legion not the vfw but the activity itself
0: coming up after the break we'll be discovering the origins of dci itself and one guest is going to help me understand what a g bugle is and why it's still held in such esteem
1: Finding Drum Corps is brought to you by DCI Experience Tours. Whether you're a fan, alumni, or a music educator looking to bring your students on an experience that they'll never forget, DCI Experience Tours have packages for everyone who plans to come to DCI Finals. DCI Experience Tours are hosted by Keith Kelly, host of the Finding Drum Corps podcast and operated by Celtic Horizon Tours. With over 25 years experience in individual and group travel, Celtic Horizon Tours will make sure that you have the best possible experience to suit your needs. Join Keith and the DCI Experience team for exclusive backstage access, VIP dinners, rehearsal walkthroughs, and much more. To see what we're putting together for 2021, or to start working on a custom performance and education tour for your students, head over to CelticHorizontours.com forward slash DCI experience, or find us on social media at DCI Experience Tours.
4: Help us to ensure a bright future for thousands of performers around the world. Donate today at dci.org slash march on. That's dci.org slash march on.
0: We've explored a little of those early years of drum corps. For me, and I'm pretty sure many people around the world, drum corps is synonymous with DCI. That's what I wanted to explore next. What led to the founding of Drum Corps International and the partnership between its then 13 member corps?
2: It was a different time back then because it was more community-based. The Corps didn't get together as much nationally. Uh, the times that they did were rare, uh, like a CYO Nationals. Uh, you might have some a couple of groups from the Midwest and a rare group from the West participate in that, but it was usually heavily Northeast. Um, and uh, the American Legion and the VFW kind of made up the rules that everyone else just kind of followed. And that's where DCI came in. The corps at the top end didn't want to allow the VFW and the American Legion to keep making the rules. Uh, They wanted to make their own rules. They wanted to uh, see the activity evolve, and they wanted to take responsibility for themselves instead of being a participating organization in one of these veterans groups where it was just a side thing. Uh, for uh, them to have at their conventions is to have its own spotlight and to bring the marching music community together under this umbrella we now call DCI.
0: Before we press on with the development of DCI over the next 50 years, Michael Cesario had a somewhat more detailed and let's say intimate perspective on the founding of DCI.
3: So people came from all, all these corps were coming from all over to compete.
0: Mm-hmm. And there
3: was, was I guess, supposedly for the joy of competing. And people <laughs> figured that these American Legion posts could sponsor these corps and send them on their way to the championship. Well, of course, mm-hmm. nobody was thinking about how much a couple of buses cost to take across <laughs> the country. <laughs> right. And uh, the great Jim Jones of Troopers fame, uh, I, I'm going to tell it the honest way. And if you have to, if you have to <laughs> it out, say it out. He <laughs> and they were pretty tired of this, and Jim Jones and Don Warren of the Cavaliers went to the men's room at the same time, and standing next to each other, said, "There's got to be a better way. There has got to be something." I've had it with this. I've had it with being told what our rules should be. We should make up our own rules. I've had handed a few dollars. And uh, Mm. at that time, the troopers and the Cavaliers were uh, neck and neck in uh, uh, championships and so on. And uh, the two of them agreed in the men's room (laughs) that they were going to set up their own organization. And they did. (laughs) And, uh, At the same time, on the East Coast, uh, United UO, so United Organizations of Eastern Corps, UOEC, Hmm. was forming. So uh, Cavaliers, Troopers, Blue Stars, and so on formed what was called the Combine, and UOEC was a parallel organization on the East Coast. And what they did, and this was unheard of was the Combine said, you don't get one of us. You get all of us or none of us. Huh. And uh, the rules are going to be set up by the Combine. Um, and this is how, well, people said it'll never work and the, all of the uh, American Legion posts, VFW plus Post got really, um, you know, be in their bonnet. Um, I'm trying to think of clean things to say here um i normally don't i normally don't tell this story except with a few adult beverages in my hand and there was the head of uh the, uh the 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 one of the service organizations uh, uh vfw um was a fellow named Anton anton schlechter tony schlechter and he was i think it's fair to say he was kind of a bully boy um, he <laughs> would uh, say here's the rules and take them or leave them and uh, and i mean you can't say that to grown men who have organizations and uh, it really got under it, it was a burr under jim jones's saddle for sure and uh uh warren the same way he had founded the cavaliers down warren in 1948 so these were two men who were highly respected within the community and the community was growing and changing and so they got together, they banded together, as I said. They did this season, the 71 season, with two separate groups. They added uh, the Combine, added uh, the Santa Clara Vanguard from California, which at the time was wearing satin vests that was relatively new. And, um, and they put together these different groups, and it turned out that the crowds came anyway. They thought they were not going to have a big crowd. Whatever. The crowds loved these shows because they saw all the high-powered, wonderful Cores all in one place. Imagine that. Now, ticket prices were higher, and the Cores um, split the proceeds as opposed to having the proceeds assigned to them by uh, somebody in an office, and uh, so it really became, of the Cores, why
0: The music you just heard was the Anaheim Kingsman in 1972, DCI's first world champions. Now, as a newcomer to drum corps, I've never been able to experience that traditional drum and bugle corps sound. At the turn of the century, the activity began a process of moving from G-bugles to B-flat trumpets. I wanted to get a better understanding of that great debate.
5: You know this is a very controversial subject.
0: This is Tim Hinton host of the Marching Roundtable podcast and MarchingArtsEducation.com. Tim's work has been incredibly helpful to me over the past five years as I've been learning about the activity. I couldn't think of anyone better to handle this tough topic.
5: Talking about G Bugles and why people love them, I can tell you I was there. The first time I heard drum corps was on G Bugles and there was a special sound and there was a special amount of volume. So I think anybody that was around during that era, it's understandable to me that they still romanticize it and love that sound. And I got to tell you, there are a lot of days when I miss it. The thing is the G Bugles were pitched differently. Of course, there's a different tonality. That's not the right word. There's a different um, structure of the overtone series and everything when you're pitched in a different key. And the instruments themselves had a more conical bore, which means it's sort of like the funnel shape of the small part to the big part was bigger. the The instrument itself, the tubing of the instrument, was larger, so it allowed for more air to move through the horn, and so it was louder. And it had this very big, big sound that people love. So when you had a hundred winds, or let's say you had sixty something horns out there, and they all have these huge conical instruments, and they're playing at full volume. It was this huge, huge, very loud sound, and it was different. So that's what everybody my age grew up falling in love with about drum corps, was this huge, huge sound. People will go back, those that don't understand or weren't there, they will say, oh, they didn't play in tune, and they don't sound good in the tone quality. And actually, that's not really true. Certainly, we changed to be flat instruments primarily, I think, because of a better sound, better tuning Um, you know, originally bugles had one or two valves. Sometimes it was one on the top and a trigger. So even there were certain notes you couldn't actually even play. So it evolved out of, you know, the bugle where the guys out in the in the field, then there's no valves, right? So that's a bugle. So that's why we're we're drumming bugle, because we started from there and then they added one valve and then they added a thumb valve. And then so eventually when I was marching in 1980s, we had two valves there was not a third valve. So there was this big, thick sound, all this air could get through it, it was super loud. But ultimately, there were a lot of reasons I understood as far as my understanding, of course, of why they switched. One was that instrumentalists were used to their B flat horns. So there was a less of a transfer, you know, you had to learn some different fingerings, right? Certainly, if you only had two valves. So part of it was, everybody's used to playing a trumpet or they're used to playing a marching baritone. So there's less of a transfer. And also the instruments are, I will say the B flat instruments are in a better, they do sound different. They do have a typically a little bit of a better tone and they do play better in tune. So if you listen to drum chords right at the air where we switched over and you listen to a group that's playing on G bugles and you listen to a group that's playing on B flat, you can hear that the tone and the tuning is probably improved. But I have to say in defense, there (laughs) is something lost because that big open sound from those big conical instruments was something special and unique that made drum corps sound and be different than band. And so I think people that lament the G Bugles being gone, I think that's what they're missing. One is of course, Mm -hmm. that's what we played on. So that's what we knew and that's the sound that we first heard and listen we, I am doing these DCI rewatch podcasts and we're going back and listening to old shows and talking about them. And those horn lines sounded great. And I mean, mm-hmm. you talk about 1993 Blue Devils or some group, I just had that conversation. I mean, they're <laughs> playing in tune and they're playing with a great sound. So you can't just dismiss it as, oh, they played out the tune and they didn't sound. No, we were making great music at mm-hmm. high levels, but the new instruments are better in tune. The trade-off they don't play as loud. They don't have that big, giant presence peeling my face off that the Beatles <laughs> had. And that's what sort of the old timers really miss. Yeah. I think, Keith, if I'm honest, this is part of what's led us into amplification. The beginning of amplification was, I mean, this is going to be controversial that I'm saying this, but I'm going to still say it. The beginning <laughs> of amplification was to help the mallet players. They were having to just play as hard as they could on their instruments. That's not good for their hands. It's not good for their instrument. It's not good for their technique. Mm -hmm. Of course, what happened was we all knew that you, that the genie out of the bottle and all of a sudden everybody's going to see, well, what can we do with this? We have all these speakers, we're amplifying them. So all, you know, so we end up where we are today, but I will Mm -hmm. tell you that quite honestly, I do think part of the reason we're now miking instruments is because people are trying to get back to that day like I was in 1978 when that horn line first played in those g bugles. And I felt the paint peeling behind me on the stadium. And I thought this is miraculous <laughs> and thrilling and everybody wants that. So I think it's interesting balance because I see both sides of the story. Yes. The new instruments do play better in tune and they have a little bit of a better sound, but we lost some of that sort of brilliance and the bigness of the sound. And I think that people are smart, and really creative, and we're finding ways to bring that to the field now.
0: Drum Corps continues to grow and evolve, sometimes slowly and sometimes at a rapid pace. Even since my first introduction in 2015, I've seen some pretty significant changes. One man in particular has been watching and evaluating these changes over decades. So
4: I had the great uh, pleasure and honour to be involved with Drum Corps International as a judge in the early days. Uh... I, I, it was interesting because I was still in university. I hadn't even graduated when I started judging drum corps. But what, what I think I brought to the uh, table in terms of experience was that I was really a trained musician and I was going through um, a professional training program. Prior to that, some judges had that experience. Some had degrees, but not all. In fact, a lot of the music judges had merely marched in drum corps and brought that experience, which was very important. They had marched and taught and and uh, successfully taught at a very high level, I mean, they had arranged music and so on. But they, they hadn't really, you know, the pedigree of um, being a professional musician and bringing that to the uh, adjudication table was still evolving, and there, I had many colleagues, uh, lifelong friends, who uh, some of still are judging today, and some who've uh, you know left it and and, and saw the light and, and actually golf in the summer instead of doing this. But um, they, you know, they th- it was a really interesting time because uh, we were pretty young, and drum corps was young, and we all sort of grew up together. And we went from just being um, the guardians of precision and making sure that everybody marched in time and was in a straight line and played together. You know, when you listen to the musical interpretation of the 1970s into the 80s and then on into the 90s, and when the Star of Indiana came along and some other course I mean it was really, it's really interesting just listening to the recordings to see how how the, the interpretation evolved. And I think some of that was because of judges who had professional training as musicians and were requiring more of that than just vertical alignment. So I think musically, uh, the musical side evolved. And then we started to see, you know, um, Santa Clara Vanguard came out in some show in the 1980s where prior to that, all of the marching was what we called symmetrical, So you could split the the drill right down the middle and the left half was a mirror image of the right half and the color guard was nicely arced around the back. Everything was very balanced. Well, they came out and they did this follow the leader drill and they did this asymmetrical movement and they, you know, they really, everybody was going, what the heck is this? And then imitation, uh, what is it? Art follows imitation, imitation follows. You know, the next thing you know, the next year, people are all into that, and so it—it it was really interesting. These seminal mo- moments along the way, where um, a certain style of music became more popular, and you know, we've we've gone through some some times, and where I will say, you know, in in respect to all of the people who, who went in that direction, where we had some pretty terrible programs in drum corps. And it was a lot of very heavy, serious, uh, contemplative music that the audience didn't care a tinker's cuss about. You know, they had no interest whatsoever in that. And and we've seen a regenesis in the last few years. Um, a good friend of ours, Michael Cesario, was appointed as artistic director about 10 years ago. And he, he really challenged the corps to say, hey, let's get back to our roots, but still stay in the 21st century in terms of what you can teach, how you can teach, and how you can be creative. And that's made a huge difference. And I think audiences are coming back to drum corps because they recognize that there's melody out there and there's there's entertainment and there's moments of impact and moments of contemplation and beautiful expression, whether it's visual or music, that happens all the time. So I think, you know, that's, that's where we've evolved to. We've added in electronics. We've added in just about every instrument possible. Uh, apologies to the clarinet players. Not ready for you yet, but we may get there. And then, you know, where do we go next? Uh, I, think, I think the sky's the limit, but it is important to remember the performing stage. We typically, except for the dome stadiums in Drum Corps International, are in outdoor venues in big football fields, and so there's only so much you can do in terms of um, contemporary production you can't really do it like a rock concert because it would take way too much money and way too much time to get the setup happening with the lights special effects and and you've got to get it over in a couple of hours because you know there's 10 12 groups have to get on it so um how far it will go I think musically and movement wise, the sky is the limit. Um, And it's all about the creativity of the design. Drum Corps is
5: Marching Music's Major League. It is the ultimate level, and it's so immersive, sort of like the very best summer camp you can ever imagine, where you go off and for for six weeks, you leave the world behind, and you're with this group of people in this really special place, and you have this life-changing experience.
3: DCI is a summer blockbuster. It has to have the compelling reason that you want to see this tale told. The point is there are millions of ways to communicate with other people. And we found a really cool
0: So we've spoken to some really amazing guests on this episode, and I think that I've learned an awful lot. Mallory, what fascinated you most about this particular episode?
1: I stand by my questions from the beginning of the episode. And I was, (laughs) I really thought the early history of the, of, you know, pre-drumcore even, and the, the early stories of Drum Corps International were really interesting. And I had no idea that the VAFW and American Legion and CYO was so integral to the formation of these organizations that I respect and admire and love watching year after year. Mm -hmm. Not a clue. I had no idea. And I thought that was really interesting. Um, I'm just hearing (laughs) any of Michael's take on the early history of drum corps was right. so entertaining and so much fun to listen to
0: yeah so uh, drum corps international was founded in the men's bathroom
1: in a bathroom <laughs> where the greatest minds and ideas come together
0: right. <laughs> I I taught a story about the Cavaliers and the cadets and the cadets being without a uniform and without instruments and uh, the Cavaliers their yeah. big rivals of the time lending them all of that so that they could compete with them. I thought that was uh, I thought that was a great story and what a great way for the I suppose the foundation of the activity to move forward into the into the next fifty years after that. Yeah, um, I thought that was fascinating and
1: it does it does speak to the type of people you have in this organization yes there is that competitive spirit but there's still that very deep sense of community and wanting to support each other as artists as well
0: I tell you what I was really surprised about was my question to Tim Hinton about the Mm. G-Bugles I had kind of asked that question as sort of a bit with a bit of tongue in cheek I do know that it's a big debate in drum corps these days and I kind of came in if I'm honest because Obviously, the, the, my first experience with drum corps is with B-flat trumpets, uh, but also my, my own experience of concert bands and wind bands and military bands is with B-flat trumpets and, and to some extent cornets as well. And um, so I kind of came in with a bias already to that question, but actually hearing his perspective on the G-Bugles and why people loved it so much and why people had this nostalgia for that sound and that maybe, you know, we just can't compare apples with apples. Um, I suppose the recordings that we have made in the 80s and 90s of G-Bugle cores they're old recordings. So we're never going to be able to really hear I'm never going to be able to fully hear what a GB of mm. core sounded like. And I well suppose you you haven't heard what no. a GB of core sounded like yeah, over...
1: you and I were talking about this, you know, at some point before, but I've even got what ten, twelve twelve years maybe of of experience with the organization on on you. And I still it was just before me, but like I'll never hear that. So I don't mm. i have never heard a GB of on the field. So I would never even be able to compare what that I just think what that's, that's that really sad like, yeah there's, there's,
0: there's this there's this sound that people were so in love with and that was so iconic to the activity that newcomers to the activity be it generational or just geographical newcomers like me we're never going to be able to hear that iconic sound um yeah. and you know look the sound that the cars are producing now is absolutely beautiful and amazing and iconic in its own way but uh yeah I would have Would have liked to be able to hear that live G-bugle sound at some stage. So, our next episode is all about the performers. I mean, they are the main people that we all go to see. They are the reason that we pay for our tickets to go and see these uh, these shows. It's the reason that I fly to uh, Indianapolis uh, every year for the last number of years to go and see these shows and see these performers. You're going to be able to speak to an awful lot of this.
1: I'm looking forward to hearing people's different experiences different to mine because we've got some big generational gaps here you know and I'm interested Mm -hmm. to hear about you know even 2008 versus 2018 how different was it to March like there's 10 years there I Mm -hmm. I'm looking I'm looking forward to talking to some of the people in this next episode Mm
0: -hmm yeah i mean i'm just really interested in sort of what the audition process looks like and that role of the drum major and what you know how someone that's so young 20 21 years of age that can be leading a core and being a really big role of responsibility um and then you know you hear sort of the debate about sort of the activity in the in the 80s and the 70s versus today and sort of just comparing what the performers were like back then to what Mm -hmm. the performers are now is there any real difference i mean ultimately the guys that sit down the back of the bus tend to be the same type of people in the 70s or 80s as as as, as nowadays and i just wonder is there i'm I'm looking forward to comparing and contrasting all of that
1: it'll be a fun episode for sure
0: thank you to all of the guests on this episode dan atchison michael cesario tim hinton john phillips and of course my co-producer mallory anderson Thank you as always to my friends at DCI for their ongoing support and encouragement with this project. If you've enjoyed the show, I would really encourage you to head over to dci.org and if you can, make a donation to the March On Fund or to your favourite core or soundsport team this summer. Until the next episode, March On.
1: Drum Corps is produced by the Global Band Room, a podcast where we chat to band directors and musicians from across the world. If you liked this episode, make sure to subscribe. Finding Drum Corps is available on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts. To find out more about Finding Drum Corps and all of our incredible guests, follow us at the Global Band Room on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter.